if you want to predict the future, you need to study the past. The past will tell us that countries that empower their citizens and harness the capitalist nature of their systems where everyone's competing and we're getting the best outcomes always win. Always. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci. And I don't know if today's guest would think of himself as prophetic, but it just so happens that right before the pandemic, the book that Jeff Wald was working on was a book about the end of jobs and the changing landscape of labor and employment here in the United States and abroad, and how that might impact us in all these different ways. And so, as it turns out, when his book was released in early 2020, it turned out to be very timely. And I think even, again, still ahead of its time, right, when we think of how we really didn't see the impact, the full impact on our work life, until we were deeper into the pandemic. And actually, maybe we still haven't seen the full impact of our work life as I record this today. But I'm excited to introduce you to Jeff because he will not only talk about his observations, but he also will share about his book writing journey. And as is true every time we have an author come speak to us on the Author's Corner, there are always nuggets for anyone who is an author or wants to become one that you can garner from this conversation. So before I introduce Jeff to you, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Jeff Wald is the founder of Work Market, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers. Jeff has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform which was eventually purchased by Salesforce.com. Jeff began his career in finance, serving as managing director at an activist hedge fund called Barrington Capital Group. And he was a vice president at a venture capital firm, Glenrock, and has played various roles in the MA group at JP Morgan. Jeff is an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private boards of directors. Jeff is the author of two books, The Birthday Rules and the Amazon bestseller, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff frequently speaks at conferences and in media about startups as well as labor issues. He holds an MBA from Harvard University and an MS and BS from Cornell. So without further ado, let's go talk to Jeff. So Jeff, welcome to the Author's Corner. Robin, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
I'm so excited to have you here as we were just chatting before the show. We've actually met in person in Mm -hmm. the past, just before the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And I was checking out your book, The End of Jobs, and looking at the pub date. Your book came out just after the pandemic had really taken on steam. So I'm excited to talk about how some of your perspectives may have changed. But before we go there, Let's go back to even before your book came out Mm -hmm. and you were thinking about your book. What was it that had you decide, I've got to write a book and it has to be about this? Well, I'm going to first start with the what made me decide I had to write a book because the initial impetus was not this book. Ah. And the answer to that question is frustration and annoyance. So just to put some color on that. I, you know, was the founder of a company called Work Market. We were leading and still are leading the evolution of gig work, especially in the enterprise. We built a decent sized company, raised about a hundred million in venture, and we sold the company to ADP. So it was a great outcome. And because of all those things, you know, before the sale to ADP, I was speaking at conferences and talking about the gig market. And I will tell you, Robin, it's very frustrating for a person that's very evidence-based and data-driven to be on a panel with people that are not and people that make ridiculous statements that literally have a 0% chance of coming true. And so people would be out there in regards to the gig market and they would say, oh, well, 50% of the workers are going to be freelance in the next 10 years. And I would say, (laughs) no, no, like they won't, like 0% chance that's going to happen. And it gets very frustrating. And so I thought there's too much confusion here and somebody needs to be very clear about what the history of the gig workforce is, what the data around the world of gig is, and how we can use those with the combination of how companies actually engage gig workers in order to make thoughtful predictions about the future. And as I was writing that book, it evolved into, well, if we're doing all this research on history and data and how companies engage workers, maybe we should explore beyond just gig workers and get into remote work and automation and a host of other things that are powering the future of work. And that is the book we ended up with. But it all started with being super annoyed while being on panels and listening to other people give speeches. And you know, I think that that is actually a motivator for a lot of authors, right? You're just tired of hearing people get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't profess that I get it 100% right, right, but I will, without question, have a logic and a defensible position when I make a statement. It won't just be something that I just think. I'll say, well, I believe that there's a high probability of X because of A, B, and C. Now, you may disagree with some of the characterizations of A, B, and C. You may disagree with the conclusion that A, B, and C leads to X, but that's my logic, not just, oh, I think X is going to happen. Why? Well, I just think that it's going to be a powerful trend. Like I have no patience for it. Right. Yeah. Kind of the off the cuff. Yes. I'll just skip where they're talking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is a non-explicit show. (laughs) So the subtitle of your book is The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. And Mm -hmm. so, as we said, pub date June 2nd, 2020. So clearly when you were writing this book, it was before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, as far as the way the pandemic has played out, how well 
would you say our future map, you know, our, our immediate future has matched your predictions in your book or not? It's a great question. I will say that in regards to gig workers and remote workers, there were substantive changes that occurred for remote work, substantial and sustained changes that have vastly sped up the timeline under which this notion of breaking the nine to five in the office with one manager job got broken happened just much quicker. Mm -hmm. I mean, much, much, much quicker, like decades quicker than would have happened without the pandemic. Hmm. Gig work sustained a lot of volatility, but I think ends up on the same basic path. And the same, I think, can be said about automation, that there have not been substantive sea changes that have occurred because of the pandemic. Of course, all else being equal, assuming that we are coming out of this, God willing, and, and all right. that. Yeah. The data would tell us that there have been structural changes in remote work and potentially structural changes in portions of the labor force and how they engage with work in terms of immigration and retirees. Those are more substantive changes. Those are things that the book didn't really touch on because I did just assume a steady state. And here's one of the main takeaways from the book, Robin, is that the world of work moves very slowly and steadily and deliberately, except for, and we do say this in the book, except for moments of tremendous societal stress, wars, ah. depressions. I didn't specifically say pandemics, but pandemics. And those things cause huge changes, some of which are sustained and some of which are not. Mm -hmm. And so the big takeaway is always things move slowly and steadily. And for gig work, that proves to be true. For automation, that proves to be true. For demographics, that tends to be also true. But again, the pandemic did change this remote work. And we can double click on that if you want. And things I didn't really touch on that much, immigration and retirement, because they historically have moved very specifically. I will still bet that they will return to trend. But as of right now, today, in March of 2022, they are off trend, causing a lot of disruption in the labor markets. But by off trend, by the way, I mean 5%. And 5% though in labor markets is a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. A 5% shift in unemployment is huge, right? Huge. In any market. So, and talk about that a little bit, because I know we've heard a lot about like, there's so many baby boomers retiring every day. And mm -hmm. so we're losing that experience and talent. Sure. What is the shift as it relates to immigration that you're talking about as far as that? Part well, let's touch on retirement for a second first, because okay, yeah. yes, we all knew the statistic or many knew 10,000 baby boomers were retiring day pre-pandemic. That has increased, and it's increased for two basic reasons that we can discern. One is the stock market rocketed up, and so people had a bigger retirement pot, so they thought, I'll take it earlier. So they yeah. retired earlier, increased retirements. Two is the pandemic has a much greater impact statistically on people that are older and have more comorbidities and other health issues, things like that. And so there were just safety concerns that took people out of the labor force. Now, both things can be reversed, right? People that retired for those reasons or others can come back to the labor force. The most important example, of course, being Tom Brady yes. coming out of retirement. So let him be an example to the other workers. I but hope Tom's listening so that he hears your call. <laughs> well, as a lifelong Jets fan, you know, he can stay retired and you know, that's it would fine. Only help. 
I don't know if anything will help the Jets, but <laughs> well, yeah, no, never. the Jets need a whole lot more help than just Tom Brady staying retired. <laughs> but be that as it may, that has fundamentally in a labor force of 164 million people taken about 3 million people out of the labor force because pre-pandemic, those 10,000 baby boomers that were retiring were for the most part being replaced by new workers entering the workforce mm. for the most part. Right. And so it wasn't impacting the labor force in any significant way. It was a long-term trend that the labor force in the United States would potentially shrink. But what countered that, you know, we do have potentially a shrinking labor force from a baby boomer retirement standpoint. What countered that was the other factor, and that's immigration. Hmm. So the United States would add about 1 million people to its labor force through mostly legal or documented immigration. Hmm. And those are our visa programs. Uh And during the pandemic, those programs came to a halt in a lot of ways. And the previous administration fundamentally changed not just the immigration laws, but the patina of the United States as a place that immigrants want to come. Yes. And those things combined to lead to, in our current situation with about two years of the pandemic, about 2 million fewer workers. And so when we talk about the state of the US labor force, it's important to understand that we're 5 million workers short. The GDP of the United States has caught up to where it was pre-pandemic, surpassed it. But the labor force is still 5 million workers short. 3 million because of retirement, 2 million because of immigration. That is the story of the US labor market today. And whether it's great resignation, which we can talk about, or wage increases or tight labor markets, the story of it is 5 million missing workers. And they're not missing. We know where they are. They're just not coming to the United States or they're staying retired. And those are fundamentally not great things for the US labor force. We want those people coming to the United States. We want people working longer in the United States. So we will see, though, how those trends play out over the next 12 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on how they might play out? I am so hopeful. I mean, look, we can talk about the things that truly make the United States an exceptional nation. And there are many, many things that make this country truly exceptional and necessary for the safety, security, and future of this planet. Mm -hmm. But one of the most powerful things is that the best and the brightest from countries all over the world come here. We're this self-selected group of people that have the guts, the innovation, and the intellect and the drive to get here. And Mm -hmm. so, wow, the country that brings the best and the brightest in the world all to its place ends up being the best country? That's not a surprise to anybody. (laughs) Go figure. And so the fact that we aren't stapling green cards to the kids that come here to be educated, the fact that we don't massively increase the H-1B programs, the fact that we don't do all these things is mind-blowing to me and is so detrimental. So I'm hopeful that there's comprehensive immigration reform that can come to the United States Congress, but history would teach us to think otherwise. But a lot of this immigration suboptimality is driven by the pandemic and people just not being able to kind of move. So the most important thing to the U.S. labor force right now is the end of this pandemic, which God willing, we are moving towards. Yeah. But you know, what you're describing is something that I even saw firsthand, a very bright young woman from India graduated from a top university that we'd all have heard Mm -hmm. of and couldn't get a visa to stay. So she's back in India. 
and they sent her back at the peak of the delta variant i mean it was Mm -hmm. just i couldn't even believe it it is mind-numbingly stupid and when you think about the acceleration of the confrontation between civilizations that we are seeing with liberal democracies on one side, and I mean liberal in the traditional sense of the word, not the modern democratic sense of the word liberal. I mean, liberal is in free trade and open markets and a market-based system. Between democracies on one side and autocracies on the other, we should want nothing more than to say every Russian that can't stand what's being done in your name, you want to come to America? We want you here. Yeah. And, you know, I would say the same to any Ukrainian, but they're not fleeing because of anything terrible happening that they did. It's they're being exterminated. They're all welcome. Anybody in China that suddenly feels like because Xi Jinping has cracked down on tech firms and making wealth and you don't feel safe and you can't make money in China, come to America. We want you here. Yeah. And I will tell you that history, because again, the book is very focused on if you want to predict the future, you need to study the past. The past will tell us that countries that empower their citizens and harness the capitalist nature of their systems where everyone's competing and we're getting the best outcomes always win, always. And so China wants to crack down on their people. Great. Russia wants to crack down on their people. Great. Great for America, bad for the world, bad for their people. But we should be taking advantage of that. And we will continue to be the country that we are. Well, and we're also having a huge shortage in trade workers. And as a homeowner, you might have noticed (laughs) if you need anything done, get in line. (laughs) So Very true. I mean, very true. We could use all kinds of talent from all kinds of places. (laughs) There are multiple issues with the trades, right? And the biggest one seems to be a stigma issue where we have this educational bias towards the four-year college for everybody. And that is not an optimal path to go to college and take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Being a plumber, an electrician, a truck driver, these are middle-class jobs that are six-figure jobs in many cases. Mm -hmm. And they are jobs with huge, huge shortages. And there are great companies that are doing the training and the financing of that training to help plug that skills gap. But there's something that talks to our retirement issue, that talks to our immigration issue, because both of those are, and nursing, you can certainly put in this category, another allied healthcare trades. These are wonderful jobs that people should be proud to be a part of. And if that's their career path, we as a society should not say, no, 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 you shouldn't go to a technical school and become an electrician. You need to go to a four-year school. No. You don't. You just don't. Exactly. And there's this kind of snobbery around it. Yeah. But these are also so vital to a healthy economy, to a healthy Mm -hmm. niche, to have diversity of skills in the workforce as well. So how was the writing for you when you sat down to do this? What was your favorite part and what part did you hate the most? (laughs) I don't know that I will be able to give you a favorite part, Robin. Like. It sucks. It just sucks writing a book. You know, the question I thought you were about to ask me earlier was, you know, your book came out in June of 2020. Did you think about changing it in any way? And I did get a call. Oh, great. Yeah. Let's talk from the about publisher. That. Yeah. I got a call from the publisher, you know, in April being like, with all the changes to remote work and this and that, do you want to change the book? And I was like, oh my God, no. 
yeah. I don't want to touch the book, release it. Because if I had to go back in and change things around, A, I thought that the frameworks I established were important and were true regardless of any near-term fluctuations mm-hmm. or any near-term events, pandemics included. So I didn't think that the book needed it, but I just didn't want to. Right. Just, <laughs> the thought of going back in and just, I was like, oh my God, I don't even want to see that thing again. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've got hundreds of copies of that book in my home and I will, I just do not touch them. Anytime people come oh, over and no. give them a copy of the book. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, can you, can you sign it? I'm like, yeah, just open to the first page. I don't want to actually see the text. I don't want to see it. I don't want anything to do with anything. Wow. Real PTSD around this. Oh, completely. So I will tell you that I started writing this book seven years before it was released. Oh, wow. And look, I was building a startup. We had a couple hundred employees. This was a full-time job, like mm-hmm. two full-time jobs to build a startup. And so trying to write and find time to write was very difficult. I certainly started with a ghostwriter, mm-hmm. parted ways, mm-hmm. started with a co-writer, parted ways, mm-hmm. both of whom were amazing people, both of whom do not have a single word, not a single word of theirs is in that book. Right. And so those were false starts and I had to throw everything out and start again. Mm-hmm. And so it was very frustrating. The number of times I would be sitting in my desk in my office back you know, when we used to do such a thing. And I would be have the printout and I'm reading through it and writing and changing notes. And I would get so frustrated. I'd throw the thing in the air and storm out. Oh. And my assistant would look at me and I'd be like, I'll clean it up tomorrow. I'm leaving. And I would just go <laughs> home because I was so frustrated and I hated what I wrote. I just hated it. And so I got it to a point where I did like it. So for anyone, please go buy the book and read the book. <laughs> I don't want you to think I ended with a book that I didn't like, but (laughs) I can answer the part about my favorite part because my favorite part was the fact that the woman that was my co-writer for a little bit came up with the idea to get other people to contribute. And so we Tom Sawyered this thing. Mm. I didn't want to finish the book because writing another hundred pages meant repeating oneself. And a lot of business books, as you know, I'm sure as well as I, are just saying the same thing over and over again. And they could be much, much shorter. Some and of them point, could be a tweet. Oh, completely. Right. And it's 170 um, pages yeah. instead of uh, 140 characters. <laughs> the publisher at one point said, he kind of did the thing. He's like, this mm. feels like a B. Like you need more pages. Yeah. And I said, I don't have anything else to say. And that's when I remembered what the person I had partnered with that we parted ways had said, and I reached out to all of these luminaries, people that I was so incredibly fortunate to have crossed paths with while building work market, met them at conferences, met them at other events, some of whom I just reached out to and said, Hey, I'm writing this book and I'd love you to contribute. So I got to know them through this process. And I said to them, can you write 2,500 words on what you think the world of work looks like in 2040? And their contributions, I reached out to 50 people, about 40 people said yes, about 30 people actually submitted Ah, contributions Uh, because, you know, it's one thing to say yes, and it's another to get the approval from your company to sign a legal agreement and all the other things. Right, right, right. And then of the 30 submitted, we selected 20 that appeared in the book. And so these 20 people writing their pages that to me is far and away my favorite part of the book. They're amazing. <laughs> they're interesting. 
And most importantly, I didn't have to write it. Right. Now, I noticed something on your Amazon page about these people yes. and something about a contest. Yes. Really, I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this, Robin. I always, as a lot of people do, I feel uncomfortable asking people for help. Mm. And I appreciate that I'm giving them a platform. We've sold tens of thousands of copies of this book. So, you know, we hit number one on a number of Amazon categories and we hit bestseller lists. And so, you know, it gave them a platform, but they still, this was work. I was asking them to do work. And so I thought, how can I incentivize them? How can I motivate them? And history has told us cash is the biggest motivator. <laughs> and I have the pleasure of serving as an advisor to the X Prize. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the X Prize. They have a program going on right now called the Rapid Reskilling Program. We're down to our five finalist teams that have to take 500 people and within a couple of weeks, a couple of months, I believe, retrain them to a high paying job. And wow. so how do we do that effectively? Because that is a very, very fundamental part of what we need to do as a society. As we look at the world of work is we have to take people whose industries, whose job functions are dying because of automation, because of globalization, because of whatever, we need to move them into the industries, the job functions, maybe the geographies that are growing. And we can do that, but we need better processes for doing it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the X Prize uh, program going on right now that I'm super excited about. But I digress. The X Prize was this inspiration. I thought, you know what? I'll put together the Future of Work Prize. And so Chapter 10 is the Future of Work Prize, where I have committed a $10 million prize to one of these writers. Now, I asked them to write what the world looks like in 2040. And so there's no way for me to know who's the most correct until we right. get to 2040. Right. So we have another 18 years before <laughs> this prize gets sent out. But I will say I created this prize while I was still an employee of ADP. And I love ADP. ADP obviously bought my last company and I'm a huge, huge fan. I got the, had the pleasure of spending two and a half years in their senior leadership team. But ADP dots their I's and crosses their T's. And yeah. so when Jeff Wald, who was a senior executive at ADP, put forward this prize, they made me put the money into an account. And I so like, it's say, sitting there. Yeah, I it's was going to say, I hope you have a nice little bank account and maybe it'll be worth a bit more by the time you have to pay. <laughs> I will say that when ADP said to me, you need to put you know, $10 million into an account that is segregated and separate, I said, well, why would I put $10 million? Because in 2040, and so we agreed on a compounding interest rate and we agreed on an amount that is well less than $10 million that got deposited into that account. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, and they can do whatever they want with it, or yeah. is it sort of with an idea of very cool? It is 100% their money. Pretty good odds too. Yeah. Look, it's one out of 20. Not bad for I am hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful they're all still there. I'm hopeful I'm still there. Right? Yeah, really. <laughs> but yeah, that'll be a wonderful, wonderful thing to do in 18 years. Yes, right. Yeah, well, I hope you have a big party for the... Oh, there'll be a big party. For the announcement. There'll be a big party. <laughs> so let's see, your book has been out for a couple of years and it came out at the height of a global pandemic. So talk to us a yes. little bit about how you've promoted the book. My first thought was, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able, my first thought was, oh my God, the horror of the pandemic. But when we were able to distill down and separate out to the micro, micro, micro issue of the promotion of this book, the normal circuit of going and giving speeches on stages and things like that obviously was not available. 
And so I did more Zooms than I care to remember. <laughs> right. But I will tell you this. It was actually awesome. So here's what would have happened sans the pandemic. I would have flown to Vegas, a city that is just not my favorite place in the world. I'm with love you. Love the state of the great state of Nevada I love, but Las Vegas, I can't spend that much time in. I would have flown to Vegas. I would have had to get there the day before. I would have given a speech to a few a room of a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people. They would have bought a few hundred, few thousand copies of the book, and it would have been great, and I would have signed them. And it would have been a three-day trip, and it would have been exhausting, and I couldn't have done anything else. Yep. Instead, <laughs> I did a Zoom to a group that would have gathering in Las Vegas. And before that, I was doing a Zoom to a group in Prague. And before that, you know, I was doing a talk to a group in Chicago. And then later that night, I did a talk to a group in Australia. And I did four talks where, you know, those same number of books got sold or bought by the organizers. And I was able to do all four from the comfort of my living room without having to get on planes. Yeah. So it actually was massively more efficient to go and do it in that way. I'd love to hear more about the logistics of how you did do the book sales, because obviously, like you said, when you show up in the room, people buy the book and then they line up to get mm -hmm. the autograph. So how did you navigate that? I think that would be really interesting for our listeners. Well, look, our publisher had a bulk purchase option. And so I said, all right, you want me to come talk? You got to buy X number of books, depending on what your audience is. They bought the books. They would then have to go and package them up and send them to people. Right. So we did that a bunch. There was also the, I gave them a code and they were able to go to Amazon and each buy the book and they would send to their membership, everyone please buy Jeff's book, which in that case, maybe half of them actually did, maybe less. Sure. And they had a code and that way didn't have to ship them all to one place and have that person break them apart and ship them to other places. Because it usually is one person buys them all, you go to the conference, you sit there at a table, you sign them, and you hand them out, and that's easier. So the logistics of all of it became a little more tricky, but not that much more. So basically, they would purchase the book in advance and then give out yep. codes so people could claim the books that were purchased. That or they would literally just say, hey, we're going to buy 200 books. The books would come to them, they take them ship. out, and then yeah. package them and ship them off individually with... There was this consulting firm and I did this maybe 20 times. They'd buy 50 books. They'd have 50 clients in the Chicago area, then in the Indianapolis area, and then in the Detroit area. And they'd send them the book and some wine. And we do a book club meeting where, you know, they send them the book. And then a month later, we'd have a Zoom and they'd open the wine. They'd have someone talk about the wine. They'd all drink some wine. And then I would give a 30 minute talk on the book. And then we'd have Q&A for an hour and a half. Oh, fabulous. That was spectacular. What a great idea. It was great. It was a firm called LHH, which is an HR consulting group, brilliant group. And we had a lot of fun. We did it a number of times and it worked. I think it worked really well. And the fact that we kept doing it, I think indicates that they thought it worked really well. And what a uh, great, was, you know, you don't have everybody crammed into an auditorium and uncomfortable yeah. seats with whatever temperature issues are going on in a big room like that. And they're in the comfort of their own living rooms with a nice bottle of wine and they get to sit back and enjoy your talk. And that's brilliant. I will tell you this. I like it more, not only for what we talked about before, because my efficiency of doing one event and the next event, and the next event, and the next event, all while not wearing pants, but <laughs> there's that. What I also like more is that people will engage more. 
Yes. Right. And now mostly they'll engage via the chat mm-hmm. and not kind of come off mute and ask a question. But if you've got an audience of a thousand people and you're in a conference and you say, so what question, you know, cause I always say I'm here for you, right? Like this is your time. What do you want to learn? And in a room of a thousand people, people generally just sit there and nobody says anything. If you have a zoom of a thousand people, they come whipping in in the chat. Yeah. That's number one. That's super great. And the other thing is I like to give an interactive talk and I will say things like there are, it's an example we talk about in the book are the number of bank tellers in the United States. And I will say when the ATM proliferated by 1995, every single bank branch in the United States had ATMs. And at the time there were 500,000 bank tellers and everybody predicted the end of the bank teller job. How many bank tellers are there in the United States today? And I will say, put your answer in and chat. And then I'll often say, and whoever is closest, the meeting organizers will let me know. And I'm going to send you a signed copy of the book. And I will tell you there, the answers just come whipping in on chat. You couldn't do that if right. you're in a room of a thousand people. No, you couldn't you, do it. It would take the full hour. <laughs> yeah. You know, people shouting out. Right, oh, yeah. <laughs> but on the chat, it's super fun. And you go yeah. and you go, oh my God, John Smith. Oh, Sally Jones. That's fun. That's so fun. there are a bunch of things that allowed that the pandemic book tour allowed for. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add, it's also a much lower carbon footprint. Without question. Do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. When you think of all the international travel and the people coming and going to the event and. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I want and the last thing anybody for the planet wants is Jeff on a red eye flight back from Los Angeles. Like nobody wins there. Right. (laughs) Nobody wins. Especially Jeff. Especially Jeff. (laughs) Oh my goodness. The time has just flown, Jeff. This has been such fun. All right. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you my final question, which is my favorite final question. And the question is, what question have I not asked you that you wish I would, or that you want to answer? Let me put it that way. That I want to answer. Mm -hmm. That is a really wonderful question, Robin. You know, having the chance to meet you before the pandemic and having had our pre-time together, I'm not sure that there are many other things about the future of work that we haven't discussed. I think maybe what I always want to make sure happens is that that people leave with a message, right? That there are certain things about the book that I wrote it for. It wasn't just because of my annoyance. Like There are things I want people to fundamentally know about the future of work. One we talked about before, which is that things move slowly and steadily. Two is to be wary. Anytime you hear someone make a prediction, oh, 50% of jobs are going to go. Oh, the labor force is going to move this. I'm not saying that's never going to happen. I'm just saying you should be super wary. And I want to make sure listeners know that in order to make a thoughtful prediction about the future of work, you need to look at the history of work, you need to look at the data, and you need to study how companies actually engage workers. And if you do those, regardless of pandemics, regardless of any external events, regardless of changes in automation or gig work or remote work, you will have a thoughtful framework to make a prediction. And so use that framework anytime somebody says, oh, all the jobs are going to be lost to automation because no, they're not. It is not going to happen. Wonderful. Well, Jeff, thank you again for sharing all your incredible wisdom and wonderful stories and being with us here today on the Author's Corner. 
thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 